invite you to join me in the book of Revelation. We come to the end of this series in our proposed confession of faith, the world to come. So we will read first from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now chapter 22, the last chapter of Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This indeed is the word of our God. O Father, may the words in my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be pleasing in your sight. May your word be owned by your spirit to us. Help us, Father, as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been in church all my life. I'd even been baptized. And I tried to be good. I was a failure. I was terrified at the thought of the second coming and the judgment. But fear is really never a strong enough motivator for godliness when it's not coupled with real faith. Then, in my 15th year, over a Christmas break, the grace of God converted. Repentance and faith had come as gifts. 
but the gift of faith hadn't automatically cleared up my confusion about a lot of things. I look back now and tremble in many ways at my ignorance, but the Lord didn't demand strong faith or even fully informed, I guess you could say, faith, just genuine faith. My faith was mixed with some really serious misunderstandings, but a dramatic change had taken place. And I began to read the Bible. Now, I was familiar with Bible stories, but I'd never really read the Bible in any serious interest. I'd always treated it like a series of unrelated proverbs, aphorisms, and commands. I've no idea why. But somehow in the providence of God, he led me to read the book of Revelation. Now, I have no idea how that decision was reached. I, I think I'd heard a few sermons out of Revelation. Certainly, Revelation 3.20 was very common in the tradition in which I grew up. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. I'd heard that one. The other one I'd heard excuse me, that, yeah, that was Revelation 3.20, was Revelation 3.15-16. I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Boy, that was a, used as a bludgeon. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. But now for the first time, I read Revelation from 1-1 through 22-21. And the only option I really had for anything besides the King James at that time in hand that was, and this ought to teach you about the grace and kindness of God, all right? The Living Bible. Now, most of you are too young to have any idea what I just talked about. You don't even know what a living Bible is. It was a paraphrase of the Bible by a fellow, I believe, named Ken Taylor. And it helped to read that paraphrase. It made things easier to understand. And I've got to tell you, folks, I was amazed. The images, the sweeping panorama, the strange beasts, the angels and angelic powers the triumph in Christ, the vision of the new Jerusalem, it all gripped me. I didn't understand any of it. But mercy, it was powerful. Now, I know that part of what gripped me was the sense of the king on his throne. Man. And thus, back to Richland High School after Christmas break went Young Doug, with all of his books, to the Bible. And I'd seen some other Christian kids at school, and they were carrying Bibles, and it was weird. You just didn't do that. But, as happens in a lot of cultural settings, you figured out, well, I guess I'm going to identify with these people, so... I'll bring a Bible. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I hid it under my algebra book. 
and I went straight to my locker and I put it in there. And went to algebra class and lo and behold, the unthinkable, virtually the unimaginable happened. My algebra teacher, a Baptist pastor, by the way, beware of Baptist pastors who understand mathematics. Something about that just ain't right. Miss Pruitt was an intimidating human being. I, I was okay at math. I was never great at math. And he pretty much terrorized me from ever doing any more math. But he did what he had never done. For some reason that day, he gave us a free period. I can tell you, folks, I could count on one hand with four fingers left over the free periods I'd ever had in that man's class. So he said, you all can visit quietly, or you can read, you can talk, and I didn't. I'm sitting there just like, huh. I'm sitting next to one of these Christian fellows, an acquaintance, didn't know him well. Okay, Lord, I guess you want me to go get my Bible. But I've hidden my locker. And I went and got it and I sat out. And I looked at Paul and I said, I read Revelation. I don't get it. Do you have any idea what that's about? <laughs> now let me just tell you, Paul became one of my best friends throughout life. We were in each other's weddings. We were in together during college. And I got to tell you, folks, he, he knew something. Now, he didn't know what he thought he knew. Uh, of course, he had, he had what I didn't realize at the time was the Bible to have. If you were interested in um, eschatology, in times, he had a Schofield reference Bible. I never even heard of such an animal. And so he takes me on a tour of the book of Revelation with Spur, excuse me, Schofield's notes. I was stunned. I was astonished. But the die was cast. I was in with this group of Christians now. And uh, I figured, well, that's how you understand Revelation. Now, I will admit my relationship to and understanding of Revelation has changed quite a bit since 1974. Still a fascinating book, as it is the very Word of God, but it's a difficult book. I, I love the way Mark Dever put it. Telling you it's not difficult would be a bit like Mark Twain's comment about the German composer Wagner's music. Twain said of Wagner, it's not as bad as it sounds. Now, my, I will admit, my experience with Wagner is limited entirely to Looney Tunes' experience. As we come to the end today of our messages related to our confession, we come to the last article titled, The World to Come. We believe that the end of the world is approaching. Until that time, the unrepentant dead are held in a place of torment and persist in animosity towards God while the justified are kept in the comforting presence of the Lord. 
We believe at the last day Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final judgment. A solemn separation will then take place in which the wicked will be appointed to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy. This judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on the principles of the righteousness of God. The righteous will reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Now for some of you, that is an eminently unsatisfying statement due to its brevity. For others, you almost feel like we said too much. A little confusion. Views on end times are virtually innumerable. We don't have time to address all of those, and I know most of you are greatly relieved. So whether you're premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial or merely pro-millennial, you're in favor of the Lord's coming. We're not going to address all those issues. This, after all, is a single message for world to come. I thought Revelation is as good a place as any to consider what truly matters to our understanding of end times or eschatology. Now, there are a lot of things about which we can agree, even if we differ on the specifics. If you learned anything, I'd hope at Boulevard you've learned that we don't make the matter of your view of end times a matter of fellowship. We're pretty much open just about anybody. If you affirm the literal bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment and the separation of the righteous and the wicked, purely related to one's relationship to Christ, the promise of salvation in Him. If you believe in that, that the world has an end, there's an expiration date, and there will be an eternal new heavens and new earth, and we shall live forever as the justified saints, glorified in the presence of Almighty God forever. We're all going to get along just fine. Now, if you want to argue over the third toe on the left foot of the beast and that the identity thereof, if you want to have a discussion about the timing of the rapture or whether or not rapture is a biblical concept, if you want to discuss whether or not the millennium is a literal thousand-year reign yet to come, a symbol of the reign of Christ or something along those lines, we may have those discussions. But we as a church are not going to take a single position because all of that falls in the realm of historic orthodoxy. What I'm saying, my friend, is this. If you love to study end times and you think everything is yet in the future and you want to spend time on that, the Lord bless you. But go study the Bible. And if that doesn't interest you and that's not how you see it and you study other things, the Lord bless you. Study the Word. And live in the reality that judgment does come. And the day will come when we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 
called the Apocalypse, or the Unveiling in the original text, written by the Apostle John somewhere between the late 60s and the mid-90s. John calls it, literally, the revelation, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. By the way, my brothers and sisters, you ought to pay attention to time reference. Things that will soon take place. Now I'm going to point out a few scenes from Revelation which I believe will help you maintain your faithfulness to the king and his kingdom. But before we begin the scenes, please note this book is written as a blessing. It's not meant to be a miserable experience to read the book. Some of you steer clear of Revelation because you don't get it and you're not sure what interpretive grid to use to understand it and it frustrates you. But don't lose track of that third verse, chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it, for the time is near. Blessing is associated with this book. The key theme. And I think this is the key theme of all understanding of end times. Faithfulness to the kingdom is fueled by confidence in the king's victory. Faithfulness to the kingdom is fueled by confidence in the king's victory. The Lord revealed to a a group of fairly young churches who were at various levels of faithlessness and faithfulness, the seven churches of Revelation, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Ephesus, mostly faithful, but had left their first love. By the way, if you want to do an interesting Bible study sometime, trace the evolution of the work of the Lord at Ephesus. You can start in the book of Acts. You can go to the book of Ephesians. You can go to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Timothy's at Ephesus. And then you can go to the book of Revelation. And it gives you a snapshot of the, the expansion of the gospel, the ongoing work of the gospel, and how church needed to be reminded of what was important. See, Ephesus was faithful, but it left her first love. Smyrna was undergoing severe tribulation. Pergamum, who held fast to the Lord's name, but had some issues with immorality. Thyatira had good works, but tolerated immorality. Sardis was dead and needed to repent. Philadelphia was enduring persecution and ultimately triumph. Laodicea was lukewarm and deceived about her condition. Don't lose sight, those early chapters are not hard to understand at all. And I'd even say chapters 4 and 5 aren't hard to understand. If you can't get excited about chapters 4 and 5 in the throne room of heaven, I worry about you. Now admittedly, once you get to chapter 6, it's quite the ride till the end. Here are the themes that I think make up Revelation, and thus I think make up the key elements in one's understanding of end times. And the first theme is this, the theme of the throne. Nearly 40 times in the book of Revelation, the word throne shows up, which tells you something. The throne of heaven is occupied. God has not 
stepped down. Chapter 4, verse 1, After I this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, I'll show you what must take place. And he talks about being in the Spirit, and he sees one seated on the throne. He sees the throne standing in heaven, and then he gives a description of his appearance. And in this, there are these creatures gathered around the throne. Now, let me explain to you, folks. Identifying the living creatures, the elders, the angels, trying to get everybody identified is entertaining. But I think if you're not careful, you're going to miss the point. Because it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the living creatures or the other angels or the elders. The thing that links them together in commonality is all of them fall down before the one on the throne. The center of attention is not the creatures, is not the elders, is not the angels. The center of attention, the center of created order, the center of all existence is he who sits on the throne. The king reigns. But that's not all. Salvation comes from that throne. Chapter 7. If you want to just hold on to the book of Revelation, we'll be looking a few places. Chapter 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude no one could number. Now, folks, let's get a little encouragement here. How many going to be in glory? A multitude no one can number. Heaven ain't going to be small. from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What's the word? Salvation. The Lamb. Salvation, verse 10, belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Why do I emphasize salvation from the throne? Because without kingship, without authority, without sovereignty, without majesty, there can be no secure salvation. Unless God be God, your salvation is not secure. As long as the throne is occupied and salvation comes from the throne, my friend, know that your salvation is secure. Salvation comes from this throne. It is the place of judgment. Chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. That judgment is certain, it is final, and it is right. Hear what I say, my brothers and sisters. We hear all sorts of talk today about the hunt for justice. 
How do we find justice? How can justice come in? Let me explain the subject to you. We should strive for justice in relationships within a culture and society. But there will never in this life be perfect justice. It is impossible. We can only judge by what we behold, by what we can think about. For the Christian, that is not discouraging. For the Christian, here is our knowledge. The day will come when the true judge will judge. And he will judge not merely by outward appearance, but by the thoughts, the motivations, and the intents of the heart. And that judge gets all of it right. Oh, my friend, yes, seek justice in your hearing. Defend those who need defending. But know that it is only in the place of final judgment that full justice is done. And that throne, finally, is the source of life in heaven. We read from the 22nd chapter. Let me point out again the opening verse of that chapter. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Does that get your attention? Because some of you Christians, when I talked about being before the throne of God, you cowed a little bit. You blanched at that. It makes you concerned to be before that throne. If you have any knowledge of your sin, of your guilt, of your failure, there's a dread that can show up in us, right? But never forget the throne is the throne of life. It is the throne where not just God the judge, but the Lamb is at the throne. And my friend, if you are a Christian on that final day of judgment, you are not only justified in the sight of God by grace through faith right now, but when the judgment is declared, you shall be justified. Not because you're right. Not because you haven't failed. You will be adjudged, justified in the sight of God because the Lamb is at the throne and the Lamb has paid for your sin. Oh, Christian, this should be the joy of your heart. He has embraced you. The throne. Secondly, the Lamb. <laughs> I got to tell you, folks, I, can't, I, I read chapter 4 and I get excited, and I read chapter 5 and I worship. I read chapter 5 and I see in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back seal with seven seals. 
And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he gives the description of the lamb. And the lamb takes the scroll. And when the lamb takes the scroll, worship breaks out again in glory. He who is worthy in his person and worthy in his work, the Lamb of our salvation is at that throne. Verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Oh, my brothers and sisters, the Lamb, the one for whom we look, the one who has saved our very soul, is at the throne. He is the master of history. At chapter 6, when he breaks the seals, the picture here is the seals and the scroll are about the history, about what is to take place. And he is the master of that history. In chapter 14, at the 10th verse, we're told, those will, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. He shall be tormented with fire in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. He is the king over the judgment. He is the Lamb who goes to war. Chapter 17, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Christian, if you're more excited about a mansion in glory than you are about the Lamb, you're looking the wrong place. Say, I don't want to care about my accommodations if he's there. Him. See, I, I fear for some because I fear some are in love with the notion of a place but have no love for the one who made the place available. Are you more excited about a mansion? Or are you more excited about the master? This lamb is also the bridegroom. Chapter 19, verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Same chapter 19, verse 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In chapter 21, verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We look for the Lamb. We look for that bridegroom. And that leads us to the third major theme. Now, see, folks, you follow me? If you get the throne right and you get the Lamb right, 
you've pretty much captured the essence of what matters in the second coming. Moving finally final theme that I believe you can find in this book of Revelation is the bride or the city. The heavenly city, the bride, is an already and not yet bride. An already and not yet city. We, church, are the bride of Christ. We here this morning, those of us who are believers, members of this congregation, we are a local demonstration of the bride of Christ, which is international. The bride of Christ, the people of God, are scattered throughout the world. The bride of Christ is both the church triumphant in heaven, those who have gone before us, and the church militant who is still on earth. Further, it is those who have not yet believed who will be brought to faith. And those who are not even yet born, who shall be born and then one day be born again? We are the bride. The bride, the heavenly city, is immense in size, as we see the description in the latter part of Revelation, and is the dwelling place of God and the Lamb. Now I'll point out there is a theme in Revelation that develops alongside the theme of the bride. There's the theme of the prostitute, the unfaithful wife, and the theme of the bride. Just as there is the heavenly city, and there is Babylon. The pictures are of those who are not faithful, those who did not keep trust with the Lord. Remember that when this is written, the persecutors of the early church initially were the Jewish folk who persecuted the churches in their communities and eventually becomes the persecution of Rome. But if you read the Old Testament with any discernment at all, you find over and over again the Lord refers to Israel as his unfaithful wife, right? Over and over and over again, their idolatries, their forsaking of him are seen as a breaking of a marriage covenant. But you know what you find in the book of Revelation? The Lord has a bride, and that bride is a church. And that bride has been redeemed by the Lamb. And we will be his bride forever. Now follow me and I'll try to bundle this together. There's a picture as I think about the bride and the city. When I get to that 22nd chapter. And it's what I read earlier. Did you pay attention? You got the throne. And the river of the water of life is flowing out from the throne, right? And it flows through the middle of the street of the city. Well, I I try to picture all this, and I'm seeing this channel of living water right down the middle of the street. 
And, and then I'm given another picture. The tree of life grows on both sides of the channel. Wow. That is one big tree. Or maybe it's a whole lot of smaller trees. I, I don't know how to even envision this. Now, why does that get me excited? Because in the book of Genesis, the second chapter, I read about a garden. And in the midst of the garden is the tree of life. And because our parents chose to reject the Lord and make up good and evil themselves, they chose autonomy. The pathway to the tree of life was blocked. tree of knowledge and evil became a tree of curses. And that image of the tree is picked up again here in Revelation. <laughs> but you know why you've only got a tree of life in the book of Revelation? Because the cross becomes the tree of life. The melding, if you will, of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For he who goes to the cross says, thy will I have come to do, O my God. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And in the place of that barren, horrid instrument of death, the seeds of life for his people are granted for them. Christian, here is your eschatology anchored in history because Christ dies for his people and we are united with him. We shall also be united in his resurrection. We shall also be glorified. And that which awaits us is beyond our comprehension. Oh, Christian, how often do we find ourselves judging ourselves harshly, others judging us, making assessments, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, Usually when somebody tells me my deficiencies, I, I want to say, well, if you really knew me, you'd really be that easy. But you know, my friend, my master dies for me knowing my deficiencies. In fact, my deficiencies are what he takes care of. So that in the end, when I stand before him, I shall be clothed in righteousness, not my own. But that which is done to me in Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're not a believer today, may I encourage you, hear, hear me. You don't need to live in fear of a final judgment. Now, the Lord's coming back, and yes, he is angry. <laughs> you do not 
want to be outside of him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Trust him. This is your life. He is your son. But, oh, Christian, if this is just a job, do you catch a glimpse of the joy that is within you? I hope so. The scripture says the spirit's the down payment. And as the down payment is granted, the promise, we know the end. May this be our encounrance, the triumph of the gospel in the lives of your people. Father, so many things can discourage us. Weigh us down. Emotionally feel as though the world went backwards. 